the latter half of my university experience was C's and D's galore. So this isn't kind of like me saying I overcame everything and got straight A's. I didn't. I barely scraped by academically, but I reclaimed who I was. I reclaimed my humanity, which is everything. Hey everyone, this is Bargavi. It's Michelle. And it's Sinus. You're listening to the To Be Human podcast. We are super excited for today because we are officially recording our very first full-length episode. To kick off the season, we have an amazing person that I always love chatting with, my good friend, Mateo Peralta. Mateo hails from the jagged peaks of Bogota, Colombia, and grew up in Ottawa, Ontario, where he studied journalism. Mateo currently lives in Toronto and works for a Canadian education technology company, where he helps students and educators connect with employers. In his spare time, Mateo is an avid bookworm, collage artist, runner, and writer of short stories. His favorite color is red, which also happens to be his favorite Taylor Swift album. So without further ado, a big, big welcome to our very first guest, Mateo. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Michelle. I am so excited to be chatting with you folks. Well, it is such a pleasure to have you here today, Mateo. Before we do a deep dive into some of the key events in your life, why don't we take it way back to the beginning? Can you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and what your just your overall journey to where you are today? Absolutely. I can kick things off with the motherland, which for me was in Colombia, is Colombia. So I was born in Bogota which is a very mountainous capital, very high up in the country. And I actually only spent two years of my life in Colombia. Um, My parents split up while there and my dad and my two half brothers who are older than me by a decade uh, moved to Canada. And then my mom and I, along with my two sisters who are also older than me by a decade, uh, moved to a Dutch island in the Caribbean called Curaçao. And we spent three years there. Uh, After that, we moved to Canada and I was five years old. And so I arrived in Canada at a very young age. It was very much kind of what I knew very early on in terms of my formative memories But I kind of wish that I could go back and remember, I mean, anything of Colombia, which I don't remember at all, uh, but a little bit more of Curaçao, because while I was there, I managed to pick up Dutch and Papiamento, which is a local language spoken around the islands. But then, you know, coming to Canada, English is the focus. And so I forgot those languages, but part of me still wishes that I can tap into those hidden parts of my brain. I would say I grew up very sheltered in a lot of ways, thanks to the efforts of my mom who raised me as a single mother, as well as one of my sisters who played a big role as a mother. But I did have kind of a few challenges with being uh, the son 
of an immigrant being an immigrant myself. And I think that I didn't kind of shake those off until university, actually, which really wasn't that long ago. I'd say kind of my journey of growth has been fairly recent um, in very kind of intense ways, but they have led me to where I am today, which is here with you folks. And what was it about um, university that really was that shift for you when it came to this? Yeah, oh, that's a great question. It was it was so many things. So uh, I grew up in Ottawa, largely in the suburbs of Ottawa uh, called Barhaven, uh, which some folks called uh, Farhaven or Farm Haven or Barbecue Haven because it was essentially completely isolated, surrounded by farms, surrounded by a lot of rich white families with their huge houses and their massive barbecues, hence the name. And so I went to a Catholic school at the same time. It was very chill in a lot of ways. It was very kind of chill. I think part of me throughout my studies in Catholic school uh, in the suburbs kind of longed for maybe more of a more active, more diverse experience that I could have had at a school closer to the downtown core, but we lived where we lived. And so I'd say that because of where we lived and because of where I went to school, I just didn't see that much diversity around me. And I did experience bullying kind of prior to high school. First of all, surrounding my weight, I was a chubbier kid growing up. Uh, I had a higher pitched voice. And so I just got targeted for all of those mean uh, nicknames. And so I internalized that for a while and I hid inside of myself. I was very introverted, which seems kind of crazy to, to say out loud now, because the last thing that I consider myself now is introverted, but that's just who I was uh, in the midst of that. And so university, even though it was in the same town, even though it was an institution that I knew because my sister had studied there and had worked there, it was the launching pad for who I am today. And specifically, the reasons for that were the diversity that I was suddenly surrounded with. It was a small program that I was in, journalism. It started with a class of about 200 and then ended up being 100 by the next year and 80 students by the final year. Um, but it was, it was really special. It was really cool. I felt like I grew up in a matter of weeks in my first few days of university. And so just seeing others be completely comfortable and open with who they are led me to kind of have delayed, but still pivotal conversations with myself about who I am. And even though those happen in first year and second year, I think that, yeah, I'm, I'm glad that I'm almost glad that I had the experience I did in high school because my self discovery was so profound in university that I, I, I just couldn't imagine who I am now if I hadn't had that. That's so interesting to hear. First of all, I'm sorry that you had experienced bullying that always sucks and kids can just be so cruel sometimes. As someone who's also coming from a different culture and growing up in a very white 
neighborhood elementary and high school, I think it's very common for either children of immigrant families or even second generation like myself to hold on to that culture. Since kids just want to fit in, we maybe refuse to speak the language or refuse to bring that classic like smelly lunchbox story. Have you ever struggled with, I guess, navigating living in a very Western country, Canada, and like you said, in a very white neighborhood and affluent neighborhood, and also holding on to your Colombian heritage? And how did that continue to show up in your home even after immigrating at such a young age? Ooh, that's a, that's a good question. In a lot of ways, I almost always have felt disconnected from my Colombian heritage. And I'll tell you kind of why, because I grew up having, first of all, my two older sisters who were, who are essentially the same age, a couple of years apart. And my two older brothers, both also a couple of years apart. And I kind of grew up always comparing and contrasting my experiences with theirs, because in my case, I grew up in Canada. My kind of connection with Colombia was more of an echo, more of kind of a distant foundation. But for them, they had had their formative years there. They had had their their kind of pivotal experiences. And so even though I grew up with four siblings, they weren't with me while I was in high school. They weren't uh, with me while I was going into university. And a lot of ways, I felt like almost an only child growing up. And so I, I'd say that I kind of almost long to have a bit more of those experiences that would make me think this is who I am. Being Colombian is a part of my identity. And I, I think, I guess I was privileged in, in a lot of ways of not having had a lot of kind of negative experiences based on my kind of heritage uh, in terms of just being othered or kind of being made a point of not even criticism, but just of discussion. I also grew up and I kind of continue benefit to benefit from being a white passing Latin American person, which I think definitely contributes to my experience in having grown up. But it's something that I've been thinking about recently because I, I actually haven't gone back to Colombia since I left, which, which is crazy. It's been 23 years, which is insane. A quarter of a century of not visiting, returning to the place where I was born. Um, I've always kind of felt a sense of perhaps like bracing myself for being rejected, for kind of having grown up in the... Canadian context uh, for being, uh, I guess, what what folks would call gringo, like kind of whitewashed Latin American, which, you know, exists in every every culture in different ways. And so, yeah, that's kind of my answer mm-hmm. to, to that. It was kind of almost the opposite experience in the other extreme, if you will. Um, yeah, Mateo, thanks so much for sharing that. And I think you brought up a really interesting point about not being able to fit in into both the country where you grew up in in Canada because you were seen as an outsider, as someone from an immigrant background, but also not being able to fit in in the country you were born in, in Colombia, because people consider you a um, whitewashed Latin American and not part of their culture. 
And I feel like that is something that we often observe with second generation immigrants that kind of like lost their touch to their roots. So I'm just curious when you notice that people had these kind of impressions about you, how did that make you feel? And how did you deal with these emotions of not being able to fit in into either of these cultures that you grew up in? It felt lonely. It does feel lonely. Um, and the kind of example that comes to mind immediately was this organization called OLAS, Latin American Humanitarian Organization, uh, based at Carleton University. And I started attending their events to try to seek out that community, which I, I was expecting would go really well because I, I arrived in at, at university and I started kind of really getting to know who I was emotionally, personally, and in regards to my identity, uh, my sexuality. But then when it came to my culture, I felt like I almost hit a wall because a lot of the folks in, in this group had had a few years under their belt, a few years of having built memories. And even if they were completely different from one another, just the experience of being from elsewhere allowed folks within that group to connect with one another. And so I don't know if it was kind of guilt uh, that I felt. It was a combination of feelings, but I just remember feeling that I had kind of finally uh, arrived at, at a place where I saw the diversity that I was kind of lacking in high school, but then I didn't have the ability to build a bridge from my island of experiences into, into theirs. And so that was challenging. And how I deal with that now, I try to dig as much details and as much information as I can from my mom, from my sisters. Uh, in the past few years, we've grown, we've always been close, but we've grown more close. And I've tried to almost make a map of their experiences to kind of contextualize where I came in, when I came in, what was happening in their lives. Because in the midst of us immigrating, I barely notice where, whereas like what my siblings went through at the age that they did is something that I couldn't imagine going through. So when we were immigrating to Canada, they were, they were in high school. I, I couldn't imagine being in the middle of high school and completely immigrating to a new country where you have only kind of the slightest of holds on the language. And so I've tried mapping their experiences. And I think that something that'll be happening for the rest of my life. Ideally, I would love to visit I still have family there. I still need to need to reconnect with them. And so it does feel lonely at times, but I'm hopeful that through that longing, I'll be able to establish those connections again, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And that's really fascinating seeing as all of your siblings are over a decade older than you. And as you said, their upbringing was in Colombia, whereas yours is in Canada. Did you ever feel like there was almost a sense of culture shock within your own home, how you communicated with your parents and your siblings due to your different upbringings? Yes, for sure. With slang, for example, I, I, just, I just don't know the Spanish slang. I don't know the kind of funny, funny words. The Spanish that I know that I use is only the Spanish that I've used in my household. 
And so I have found challenges in sharing kind of my experiences in terms of what I have kind of grown up in with my siblings who kind of had the context of growing up and having their high school experiences, for example, largely happen in Colombia. So yeah, I would say that the culture of shock has definitely been present, largely in language. And could I take a lesson? Sure. Um, but I think that knowing that I have, I would, I have to put that work in versus my siblings having had that naturally, it is hard to wrap my head around sometimes. Thank you so much for sharing that, Mateo. And um, yeah, it is really interesting to hear your story as someone who also comes from a background of moving into another country at a very young age and growing up kind of underneath this third culture. I think there were really a lot of anecdotes that you mentioned that resonated with me. So I appreciate you for sharing that. Shifting gears a little, I wanted to go back to one thing that you had briefly mentioned um, in our conversation earlier. And it seems like in addition to your Hispanic background and your story of growing up as an immigrant, another key part of your identity is your sexuality. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit more about your sexuality and your coming out experience. Absolutely. I definitely suppressed it in high school. I suppressed it because, as I've kind of mentioned, the last thing I wanted in the suburban Catholic school context of where I was growing up in isn't something that I wanted to magnify. And ooh, I remember actually one pivotal moment in which um, a boy who I went to high school with at that time, everyone had a Tumblr page. Someone had discovered his private Tumblr page and found out that he was sharing things about his sexuality that people didn't know about. And it spread like wildfire. He seemed fine with it. But I couldn't help but picture myself in his shoes. And I, I remember feeling almost anxious by, by association because I thought, oh my god, I I would, I would want to switch schools. I would want to drop out. I would want to deny it. I would want to do something crazy. There were a kind of a combination of reasons for why I thought that in high school. I think that the setting of not seeing very many openly queer kids around me contributed to that. I think also growing up in the context of a Latin American household played a role and as I kind of touched upon earlier, I did grow up very sheltered in the sense that my mom and my sisters were always very open to kind of diversity to different experiences. But there was the other side of my family where I, I just didn't know. And so in not knowing how they could react to me potentially being gay to having a gay son in the family, I just thought the worst. I thought that they would just take the root of the machismo Latin culture, which is so prevalent. And that's what I thought. I, I didn't give them the benefit of the doubt because I preferred to protect myself by just assuming the worst. And so that, that, that lasted for quite a few years. I, I remember feeling sad. Like I would kind of remember at times what I was suppressing while seeing folks dating, going through breakups, having all of these kind of seminal high school experiences that I don't know, Taylor Swift sings about on the regular. Like I remember listening actually as a side note to 
15, in which she says, when you're 15 and somebody tells you they love you. And I was like, excuse me, who's telling you they love you other than your mother, Taylor Swift? I love the girl, but could not relate. Like, I don't even know what I was doing at 15. I think I was still watching Family Channel. I definitely was still watching Family Channel. I was watching cartoons still at the age of 15. I wasn't being told that uh, I was loved other than by my family members and close friends. But to get kind of back on track, I needed to see other people who looked like me being open with their sexuality for me to be able to even kind of have those discussions with myself that happened in university. It was cool because a lot of my friends in journalism lived on residence. And so I got to sleep over at their places for a while and kind of pretend that I was in a different city, that my family was a little bit further away, even though my family in Ottawa, again, very opening, very chill in every way. I just got to pretend that I was a different person. And then over the months, I realized that I, I was. I was a different person than who I was kind of hiding myself from. How it kind of all started was that in first year, I started just like telling my friends who I had gone to high school with that I was gay. And that was fine. Then I realized in second year, actually, that I actually didn't have to tell anyone that I didn't have to kind of make it a thing where I was coming out to people. I kind of began to deconstruct the closet around me. And so it wasn't until third year, actually, when I came out to my family, it was, it was very, it was a very intense period in my life. Uh, I was going through some devastating health issues, but my coming out to my family wasn't me telling them, Hey guys, I am gay. It was me telling them, Hey, I have a boyfriend. This is my boyfriend. And I remember feeling so proud of myself for that. Because even though for people who do decide to come out to make a video, have a party, that is so special. That is so important. And that's so beautiful. But for me, I thought I'm okay not having that. I'm okay just saying that I'm in a relationship. And I think with that confidence, my family just was like, okay, yeah, yeah, we're down. This is cool. Let's, let's do it. I remember telling kind of the part of my family that I was a bit on the fence about and the reaction was, that's fine. That's, that's cool. You and your partner can come visit us at any time. And I remember being in disbelief and now I am where I am. One thing you mentioned just now is that you actually had a very like direct coming out to your parents that you literally introduced your first partner, um, your first love. And I know for a lot of people that first relationship is always something special. So how did it came into being your first relationship and how did it feel like to be in love for the first time? We were best friends. We were the closest of friends for years before it happened. And um, if kind of life had all gone according to plan, we likely would have never started dating. But I got sick in the middle of my third year. And in the midst of me being sick, my friend texted me one day and admitted to having feelings for me. 
Uh, I'll never forget the moment. I was in the car with with my older sister, one of my older sisters who lives in Ottawa. And I remember kind of being at a crossroads and I asked her, what do I do? I'm not anywhere close to being in a good place physically. I'm just not healthy. My health, my well-being, my future is not guaranteed. And I've just received this text message. What do I do? And my sister said, go for it. And I'll never forget that. And I remember being surprised because my sister, I'd always seen her as kind of someone who, who chose the line of stability, of just not kind of rocking the boat, of finding a rock and sticking to it. But she pointed me in the direction of just complete unknown, of just taking a chance. She pointed me in the direction of why not? And so I went for it. I started dating him in an extraordinarily uh, vulnerable place, which was crazy in hindsight, but it, it helped me. And so I think that because of the circumstances of me being sick, that kind of helped, I guess, in a way, expedite the process of me coming out to my family in the way that I did. It was a relationship that burned really intensely, really brightly. It lasted for over a year, so kind of a good amount of time. But yeah, it was a really intense period of my life in which that happened. But I'm still grateful for it because I learned from it. And I learned now that I'm not in a intense spot in my life. I mean, global pandemic aside, I now know what I want and what I don't want. And in the midst of that, I've become very comfortable with myself. I've developed a very strong relationship with myself, which I'm very proud of. That makes me really happy. The fact that, you know, you've really come into yourself and you've built that relationship. And I can't even imagine all that must, all you must have been going through building a relationship and starting something new and having all those intense emotions while being sick. So it's been about like four years um, since you came out, four to five years. You know, how, how do you feel? What would you tell the younger Mateo if you had the chance? Wow. I feel like um, I am on RuPaul's Drag Race and I'm one of the finalists where uh, in those episodes where RuPaul holds like a picture of the, the younger drag queens and says, <laughs> What would you tell little Leo? So I love that question. Um, I would tell him to not overthink, to be more daring early on and to really advocate for himself and to strike a balance between knowing that the next day is never promised. You could die at any moment but also knowing that you have your whole life ahead of you. So you don't have to do everything in a day. You don't need to achieve the best thing that you can achieve. I think that that's a fine line that I'm still mastering now, still trying to master, but which I just wasn't even thinking of when I was, when I was younger, when I was at that age. You had mentioned a number of times that this had occurred during a very devastating point in your life when you were struggling with your health and that you were dealing with sickness. Could you actually tell us a little bit more about that curveball that life threw you while you were in university? 
it was the fall of 2016. I remember starting that year, my third year of university on such a high note. I remember feeling like I was thriving. I started that year as a residence fellow. So kind of like a Don or a CA at other schools. And for the first time in my life, I was living away from home, even though it was same city, I was living in residence, even though I was working to take care of a bunch of rugrats whom I adored looking after, I was living away from home and I loved it. I was in third year of university, uh, which in journalism, third year is the best year because you get to take the TV class, the radio class, the multimedia class, so the paper publishing class. So all of the classic kind of journalism workshops you get to do in that year. And I was loving them. I was also involved in my journalism society that year. I had become vice president and Oh, I was so happy because I remember starting in first year and thinking, these are the things that I want to aspire to. This is what I want to grow towards. And I had achieved it. I was also the healthiest that I had been. I was, I was running every other day. I was training to run a half marathon. This was also the year that Hillary Clinton was running for president. And I remember being so hopeful in the state of the world I thought, wow, America is going to have its first woman president. This is it. This is the moment. This is a good time to be alive in the world, in my life. Um, Hillary Clinton lost the election. And then I just remember noticing a lot of things not being as they should have. I started developing a lot of bruises easily on my body. I started getting sick a lot, catching colds left, right, and center, but I blamed it on living on residence with a bunch of students. And also I lived in a residence building that didn't have windows that opened, which is like, oh, but uh, I just thought, okay, this is fine. I, you know. I, it's character building. But then another thing that was happening was that I was getting very tired, very out of breath, very easily. I had to stop training to run said half marathon, but I just blamed it on being an overworked university student. So we arrive in December and I was just experiencing all three of these things really intensely. In the midst of exams, I thought I had pneumonia and I went to see a family doctor and he sent me to do blood work and I wanted to push it off because my focus was to get through exams, but my mom insisted on going to get my blood work done. And so I got my blood work done and I remembered when I got a call, not from that doctor who had sent me to do my blood work but from a doctor from the Ottawa General Hospital. She got on the phone and she said she was a hematologist. I didn't know what a hematologist was. I didn't know that it was a doctor of the blood. And she said, hey, Mateo, you need to, you need to come in. She said, I don't want to alarm you. We need to do a biopsy, but there are signs that you have cancer in your blood. There are signs that you have leukemia. And I, I, I said, no, no. Uh, can this wait? 
I remember asking her, can this wait? Can we wait a few days? And she said, you need to come in tonight. I, I, I called my sister first, my sister who worked on campus, but I, did, I didn't tell her about the leukemia comment. I just said, there's something wrong with my blood. I need to go to the hospital. Can you come help me pack? I didn't tell my mom about the leukemia part of it, which is crazy in hindsight. Uh, but I was just in such fierce denial. So we go to the hospital and I was just kind of, I was almost gliding over my surroundings. My mom and my sister noticed first that we were walking into an oncology ward. My mom and my sister noticed first that most of the individuals in the hospital rooms uh, either had no hair or they had little hair or they had scarves or hats. Uh, and I, I didn't notice that. I don't know how I didn't notice that. My doctor comes in and she says, we need to perform a bone marrow biopsy. I didn't know what the hell that was, but it's when they drill into your hip, uh, hip bone to see, to see your bone marrow, uh, to see what's in it. And then that same day, it was December 21st. Uh, she told me, Mateo, you have leukemia. You have acute lymphoblastic leukemia. We need to start treatment immediately. And I, I remember feeling like the ground had fallen beneath my feet. And I was tumbling. While I was tumbling, I, I felt like I was floating. So I hadn't hit the ground yet. I hadn't hit rock bottom. That would come later. But I remember being very focused and very kind of chill about it. I remember thinking, okay, what is treatment? Can I go back to school? And she said, this is really, really hard on the body. But I remember thinking, no. The first thing I did before I kind of told my friends is that I emailed my team on residence my director and assistant director, letting them know that I would have to take the semester off. And I remember feeling so devastated because I didn't get the chance to say bye to my students. I loved my students and it broke me to have to disappear on them. I ended up getting the next day a port inserted in which I would have my chemotherapy delivered. And I remember being excited when the nurse wheeled the chemo bags in because they were very brightly colored. And I remember joking to my mom that about how they looked like little bags of Kool-Aid and my mom started sobbing. She was, she was devastated. And that was the worst part of it. That was the absolute worst part of it. Seeing my mom in pain. And she kept telling me, and it haunts me. She kept saying, I wish I could take this from you. I wish it was me in this hospital bed. I wish it weren't you going through this. I, I wish you could give me this. And that's awful. That's awful to hear. It's awful to see one's mother cry. So I started treatment. I was in the hospital for about 21 days. I started treatment December 24th. That New Year's Eve was just terrible. Um, my dad had come to stay with me from Boston. And I remember hearing fireworks outside the hospital in Ottawa. And my dad asked me, do you want to look at the fireworks? And I said, no, 
no, I, I, I don't. This isn't, it's not New Year's. And I went to sleep. Now I didn't feel sick. I didn't feel bad. I actually responded very well initially, but it was kind of a false wellness. I was on extremely high dosage of steroids at the time. And so I was actually ravenous. I was eating so much food because of the amount of steroids that I was on. And I was just very alert all the time. It was kind of crazy. And I never had the typical throwing up the kind of experience uh, that you see, I guess, portrayed in the media. I was fine. I was fine until my hair started falling out. It only took like two experiences of running my fingers through my hair for me to say, no, I'm not, I'm, I'm not letting my hair fall out. I'm shaving it. I just, I, rem- I remember looking in the mirror and ready to break down, but I didn't. I didn't because I said, it's just hair. It will grow back. And so I got released from the hospital. I, w- I did outpatient treatment. Again, chemo was going well, but when things started to go Poorly was when I started radiation therapy. I was very fortunate in the fact that the cancer wasn't found in my brain or brainstem. It was only kind of in the rest of my body. Um, It also didn't have a genetic mutation, which makes a lot of leukemias hard to treat, but I still had to do preventative uh, 14 day radiation therapy on my head. And I lost my humanity in the midst of radiation. I I couldn't eat anymore. I entered a state of nausea that lasted for months. And that's when I started losing weight, even though I was before the radiation eating like 2000, 3000 calories a day, I was losing weight because my body was literally getting pumped full of poison and then suddenly getting blasted with it too. I lost sensation in my toes and fingertips. I couldn't open bottles. I couldn't text. I couldn't walk around my own house without being exhausted. And the worst part of it was that in the midst of being on these high dose steroids, my face ballooned. It's a common side effect of being on steroids. It's called moon face. I I hated looking in the mirror. I avoided the mirror for months. I didn't take any photos of myself. And in the midst of that, not only did I isolate myself from my friends, but I isolated myself from my family, from my own siblings. My only connection to the world was my mom and my doctors and my nurses. And so it got to such a dark place in the winter of 2017 that I was just so depressed that I, I wasn't sure if I was going to make it, even though treatment was going, was progressing, even though it was working, the, the cancer was being kicked into remission. I just didn't think that I would survive the in total two years of treatment, because that's what it is. One month of very intense, uh, induction treatment, 14 days of radiation, about six months of intensification therapy, and then the rest is maintenance. I I didn't think that I was going to make it through the intensification. And so I got to a point where I started, and this is hard for me to recount, but I started writing goodbye letters to 
my family, I started writing goodbye letters to my friends. I never finished them because I couldn't. I, I, I couldn't go through with finishing them. Oh God, I just couldn't. And so in the midst of that, I thankfully, and this, this saved my life, the radiation, the chemo saved my life. But what really saved me as a person was being connected to a psychosocial oncologist, a psychologist in psychosocial oncology, my bad. We started on high dose antidepressants. It took weeks for those to kick in. We started my cognitive behavioral therapy. And this was a very kind of pivotal time. This was April of 2017. And in the midst of this, I was debating whether or not I was going to be able to go back to school in the fall. I was hell bent on doing that since beginning treatment. I said, I'm going back to school in the fall. My doctors thought I was crazy. They thought I was absolutely crazy. They said, Mateo, it takes people years to be in a state to return to any form of normal life. If you're going back to school, take one course, take maybe two, do them online. But I said, no. And in the midst of that, I also applied for a new job on residence to be a community developer, which was kind of a step up from a residence fellow and kind of more of a leadership role. And I'd gotten the job, but whether or not I was going to be able to move into September was a question mark. It was all a question mark in April. May rolled around and I started regaining my strength. It was during this time when one of my best friends mentioned his feelings for me and we started just chatting, just chatting throughout the summer. He was in a different province throughout the summer, but even that was a question mark because for a lot of the summer, I, I, I wasn't sure, even though I expressed interest, I reciprocated the interest in starting something I, I just wasn't sure. So it was school, residence, this relationship. And I wanted desperately to be able to be in a place by August and September in which I could rise up to those experiences. And I did. And it was brutal. The anxiety, the social anxiety was brutal. But I returned to school to a full course load against the advice of my doctors completely. I returned to residence completely, extraordinarily against advice of my doctors being immunocompromised. But I did it. And it was really hard. I did very poorly in school. I was a straight A student in first year, a A-ish B student in second year and third year. But the latter half of my university experience was C's and D's galore. So this isn't kind of like me saying I overcame everything and got straight A's. I didn't. I barely scraped by academically, but I reclaimed who I was. I reclaimed my humanity, which is everything. One moment that I'll never forget is realizing that my hair had grown back thick enough for me to not have to wear a hat anymore. Because until, until December of 2017, I was, I was just always wearing a hat because my hair was still thin. But then I remember feeling so naked when I walked into 
class. It was, I think, one of my last classes in December. And I wasn't wearing a hat and I felt like everyone was looking at me. But I remember thinking I did it. I was in class, not wearing a hat. And I ended up finishing treatment in January of 2019. And yeah, it isn't even that long ago that that happened. It's very recent, very fresh. The wounds are still healing. The scars are still developing, but wow. Yeah. Thank you so much, Mateo, for that. I mean, I started tearing up during it just because as someone, and I, I'm sure everyone can relate to this, you know, it's, it's, you get a lot of your confidence and you get a lot of your self-worth from feeling like you're in control of your, you know, you're, auto- you have autonomy over your life. And I just, I can't imagine just kind of feeling like all control is like taken away from you. And all of a sudden you're kind of put in the situation where you're reacting, you're reacting, you're reacting. And it's amazing because something like a common thread that I saw in your story was just the fact that you were always trying to reclaim that control. You were, you were trying to grasp onto that control. And, you know, that one moment where you felt like, okay, I, I'm giving up, you know, you still came back. And that's amazing to me. I just can't help but think about someone else who's out there right now who's struggling with cancer or someone who knows someone in their family or their friends with someone who's struggling with cancer. Like, what would you tell them when it comes to that aspect, you know, when it comes to reclaiming that control or even just like battling with the loss of control? The first thing I would tell them actually is to stay away from blogs and stay away from Facebook groups because most of the stories that I saw online of young people facing cancer were devastating. They ended poorly. They didn't end with the person going back to school, going back to work, falling in love. Not to say that there aren't good stories out there but it's harder to come across them. And so I remember really focusing on trying to join all of these Facebook groups for survivors, for patients, for people caring for those and having just the worst of experiences because it just showed me all of the potential ways in which I could end up relapsing with my cancer, how I could end up relapsing with my depression, how this could have a domino effect of the mental health and well-being of my family. So I would tell folks to be very intentional with their use of the internet. But I would also tell folks to, to really have hard conversations with the people around them, to be kind, but to be blunt at the same time. I think that when you're going through cancer at that age, at any age, there isn't time to waste even though I did kind of have experiences in which I did feel I was brave. I did think I, I held back in a lot of ways. So I would say, speak up for yourself and be an advocate for yourself, especially when it comes to going through treatment. Doctors are amazing, but our healthcare system, and I'm referring to Canada's, but in a lot of places, any healthcare system is under strain. Doctors are spread thin like butter. And so you need to make yourself the centerpiece of, of your experience in terms of kind of uh, everyday tip that I would recommend for and what got me through 
the worst of it was making a list of every positive moment of every good person in my life of even fictional characters. Like I remember writing lists of my best friends, uh, but also of TV show characters who I admired, like Meredith Grey, Olivia Pope, and just forcing as much as you can, the identifying of sunshine, of light, because it's there. You really have to dig for it, but it's there. I don't even know what to say. That's such a inspirational story but it also broke my heart to hear you had to go through something like that and thank you so much for your vulnerability and being able to share it's been about a year now since actually one of the aunts that I'm closest with had been diagnosed with cancer as well so I've been on the other side of it and seeing like this bright light of a person kind of whittle down to nothing and we all just felt like so helpless and didn't know what to do. What would you advise for families or friends? Um, how can we support our person when they're going through something like this? Every family is different, but what I will kind of share from my experience is to not hide your pain, to not hide your suffering. I remember something that devastated me was seeing my mom and my sisters and my brothers and my dad forcing an I'm fine attitude, a attitude of I am strong. I am strong for you because that's false. They were in pieces. They were in ruins. I, I, and in ways that I, I, I'm sure I didn't know of and that I, I don't know of and that I won't know of for, for years. And so as much as it, it is important to focus on the person who's going through cancer treatment to, I guess, you know, not make it about you if you're on the other side of it, striking a balance with knowing that a family member going through cancer is an experience that happens to a family, not just the person. And that suffering as a family is okay because you're mourning a way of life as you knew it. And I, I think that in hindsight, I would have appreciated having more experiences of crying with the people around me, more experiences of saying this sucks. And not just me saying that, but hearing my loved ones say that and having them tell me how it sucks, how the stress was impacting them in their relationships professionally, because that's grounding in a way. At the same time, I remember something on the other hand that I experienced with my friends was that my friends would not share things with me because of guilt of having me feel that I was missing out. But I think that when you're going through an experience that takes you away from society and the world as you know it, there's nothing more beautiful and valuable than hearing the experiences of others to feel integrated. So if you're having drama at work, if you're having a petty fight with your friends, if you are getting attacked by a, I don't know, crazy right-wing troll on Twitter, tell the person who is going through cancer treatment who you're friends with, because those are lifelines to the world. Thank you so much for sharing that. And you've been through so much in such a short amount of time, but you know that really brings us to the present day. 
what are you up to now? And what's the big next adventure for Mateo? In this present day, I think what I try to focus on is making sure that I am making time for enjoying myself, for experiencing the world around me. I can't say that I'm grateful and thankful for having been through what I have in terms of cancer. If I could, I would erase that from my life. No one should have to go through that. No matter how much you grow from it, no matter how much you succeed from it, no matter how much of a platform you build from it, if there's an option to just hit delete, I would do anything for it. But before I went through that, I lived my life to check things off a list. I lived as if I was under a magnifying glass. I put so much pressure on myself. And I think that previously, if, if I hadn't kind of been through what I did, I would have ended up doing what I felt looked good and what I felt I should have been doing instead of now doing what I feel, as Marie Kondo would say, sparks joy. Showing up for yourself is enough. And so that's how I try to live my life now, to show up for myself, to make space for those moments of joy. And in terms of what's next, I'm ready to kind of be more alone with myself. I've lived with roommates for the past couple of years, and I've realized that I want to get to know myself more in a singular context. And so I think that I'll, I'll do that. I'll try living on my own. I'll try looking into places to volunteer. I might get a pet hamster. I don't know. Or maybe a fish. Actually, you can't pet fish, so I won't get a fish. But yeah. I love that so much. Mateo, you are truly just such an amazing person. You have experienced more, I feel, in your short 25 years than some people really do in a lifetime or multiple lifetimes. For our listeners that do want to learn more about you or join you on this next chapter of your journey, where can they find you on social media? What are your handles? I thought you'd never ask. I am on Twitter at Mateo Peralta underscore. I'm on Instagram at Mateo Peralta. But something that I started this year is a Instagram account dedicated to book reviews. I am a big reader. While I was sick, I found solace in books. Um, and I love sharing those books. So I have a Instagram account dedicated to that, along with my collage art called Pastiche Mateo. So you can reach me there, as well as on LinkedIn, as well as via Carrier Pigeon, Carrier Raccoon, Carrier Mouse, whichever Carrier Vermin you want to send my way with a little message, I'll be happy to answer. Thank you so much for that, Mateo. This kind of wraps up our time together, but we are so appreciative of you sharing and being here with us today. And not only that, but being our very first guest. We had such a pleasure chatting with you and learning more about your life. Thank you everyone for tuning into this episode of To Be Human. If you don't already, drop us a follow on Instagram at To Be Human Podcast and follow us on Spotify so you never miss an upcoming episode. Did something in today's discussion resonate with you? Let us know by commenting on our latest Instagram post and maybe even sharing the episode with a friend. Here's to many more vulnerable discussions and fascinating life stories. Until next time.